This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair, number 35, January the 4th, 1983. Now today we have a guest with us, someone who is very important in his area of work and has a remarkable and varied background. His name is Daniel Harris, a very, very uh, highly prized friend, a man of no mean ability, both in the field of theological and biblical studies, as well as in economics. Dan, we're glad to have you with us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Dan, suppose you tell everyone uh, what you do. I'm a member of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and, and trade uh, contracts for future delivery in foreign currencies, gold, government treasury bills, and standard and poor 500 contracts. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, where you were born, and uh, your point of origin as far as your parents were concerned. I was born uh, a little over 31 years ago in communist China in a Catholic hospital there that was taken over by the communist Chinese. My parents were missionaries with the China Inland Mission, which is now changed its name to the Overseas Missionary Fellowship, and they were in China before the communists took it over, and were kept there by the, the new rulers for about two years, and during that time they were under house arrest, and were not mistreated, but were not given much freedom at all, and during that time I was born in China. Five months later, we were allowed to leave and spend some time in England, four years in Indonesia, several years back in America four years in Taiwan, and the rest of the time I've been in the Chicago area. Very good. Your parents came from England originally? My father's born and raised in England. My mother's American. Mm -hmm. Well, Dan, uh, I'd like to read something to you that uh, Daniel Rosenthal in the Silver and Gold Report said recently, Reagan is the biggest spender in history. He went on to say that indications are that our ever-soaring federal uh, deficits will at least be partly monetized and that inflationary expectations will soar. Would you like to comment on that? Uh, yes. As a commodity trader, I read quite a bit of the uh, writings that are around today because uh, politics and economics are very closely related. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is from Bernard Baruch many, many years ago. And he stated, show me the charts and I'll tell you the news. Many people today are, are looking to rhetoric and not looking at the facts. And it's very important uh, not to be confused by all the nice-sounding promises that come from the Reagan administration or from uh, other capitals around the world. One experiment you can try is to look at a newspaper from a week or a month ago and notice how much of it centers around speculation, and speculation which in the very shortly, like today, shows uh, to be groundless. Uh, applying this to the Reagan administration, and it's extremely important to, to look at the facts. And they're not very encouraging. 
Uh, first of all, the current budget is the largest ever in American history. Uh, secondly, the number of employees of the federal government has greatly increased, including 5,000 new employees just for the IRS alone. It shows you where their priorities are. Thirdly, the federal government is still increasing the money supply, and that can be seen every week in the M2 figures uh, published each Friday. And although statistics can lie, it's very, very important that we do our own research. And that's saying that everyone needs to do the same research that a commodity trader or a stock trader or someone else in the financial field does. But any one of you can look in the paper and see the figures from week to week and recognize that things are not what they seem. In other words, don't listen to Reagan. Look at the uh, statistics, including what he's done with the IRS. That's right. The emphasis thus seems to be on tax gathering rather than tax cutting. <laughs> That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Now, you commented about the... Uh, news media. Do you read the daily papers? I occasionally read them, but uh, I specialize, uh, well, I read more specialized articles. For instance, uh, The Reaper, published by Ari McMaster, um, Phil Tiger and Spread, a couple of other specialized reports that deal more specifically with my field. Mm -hmm. And I find that the daily news is often very disappointing. It is uh, aimed at trying to get people's attention uh, on emotional issues rather than actually what's happening. Not that there's uh, no room for emotion, but it does tend to cloud our judgment as to what what is truly happening. You're expecting more inflation then? I think there's no alternative. Mm -hmm. This will have a bullish effect on the price of gold and silver, will it not, among other commodities? It certainly appears to be that way. Uh, it's like adding more water into a bathtub. The, any toys you have floating in the water are going to rise up, and all the toys in our economy, whether they're real estate or coins or uh, any sort of other investment antique, uh, will eventually rise with the whole water level. Mm -hmm. How soon do you expect the economy to catch up with these statistical realities. I ask that question, Dan, because instead of looking at the statistics as you suggested, people are looking at the rhetoric. And the net result is they uh, actually believe some of them that we are seeing a decrease in big government and that there is going to be a di uh, diminishing of inflation. Some insist there's been a major decrease in inflation, and that the economy is going to stabilize. Now, uh, is this having an effect on the market? There's no doubt that since approximately January 1980, when gold hit its peak, that there has been a temporary lull in the increase in the rate of inflation. I say that carefully, it's the increase, because inflation is still continuing. As long as the government keeps printing new money out of nothing, the 
the scenario is still set for continued inflation. I believe that there has been a decrease in the inflationary expectations, but that is somewhat analogous to Reagan talking about cutting the budget when all he's done is cut the increase. But the fact remains that we're spending more today than ever before in the budget. We have more dollars available today than ever before vis-a-vis -vis the money supply. Where are those dollars available? In the public or private sector? I think you have to look at who gets those dollars first. When they're printed, they go to the people first in line, which would be the multinational banks. And then they are putting the dollars currently to help roll over a lot of their uh, LDC loans, special developed country loans. Then a lot of our new dollars are going overseas. It certainly appears to be that way. But they will return, do you think, in purchases, or what will happen to them? I think we've seen a partial return already, because starting in August, we had a big boom in the stock market. And uh, it seems like you could buy blind, and just about everything went up. There were exceptions, but uh, quite a bit of that was uh, foreign dollars coming back to America, buying various stocks. Um, the same sort of buying has not hit other areas but that may, may come sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Hans Senholtz has said that uh, we are beginning the monetization of foreign debts through the Monetary Control Act of 1980 passed under Carter, and that there is a move to increase the debt limit of uh, debt or nations uh, to the IMF. Do you want to comment on that? I think that uh, the other economists have probably sort of said it better than I could say it. Uh, the idea of buying foreign government debt should be uh, reprehensible to every American taxpayer. Uh, I'm sure you wouldn't want your neighbor's uh, defaulted house to be uh, put on you. And yet that's what we are giving to someone who's far across the sea, let alone across the street. Well, I'd like to uh, buttress a few of the things you've said, Dan, uh, by going to the Daily News Digest, which is published in Phoenix, an exceptionally good report, which I've quoted before, and which of late has cited some very interesting things uh, with regard to uh, the IRS. For example, uh, let me find this item. Here it is. IRS confiscation of money. This is in the Daily News Digest for December 22, 1982. Under a new IRS Law, laws in quotes, that took effect September 4, 1982. IRS agents may impose and collect on the spot a 50% tax on large sums of money carried by couriers who refuse to identify the money's owner. Now, the digest opinion is this. They may say such laws are directed at drug traffickers 
But do we really want the IRS or any branch of government to have power to confiscate private property at will simply because the person possessing it doesn't want to reveal all? You want to comment on that? It's interesting that uh, from the time Uncle Sam prints a dollar and it leaves uh, Washington, D.C., he makes every effort to make sure it it comes right back to him sooner or later. <laughs> he still yeah. thinks it's his dollar. And more and more of it is going right back to Washington. Now this I enjoyed too, also from the same issue of the Daily News Digest. Food stamps as currency. Had you read about this or heard about it? Yes, it did. Ladies of the night have been long noted for their adaptability, but they have begun to outdo themselves. Given the sluggish economy, Philadelphia prostitutes have instituted creative financing in their industry. Recently, for example, a woman who was selling herself for $50 an hour stopped a prospect wearing old clothes. When he responded that it was a temptation but didn't have that much cash, she replied, Hey, okay, I'll take food stamps if you've got them. Food stamps, he asked. They're as good as money, she explained. They are for a fact. Federal authorities say that everyone from barbers to medical doctors are trading in food stamps these days. It's against the law, of course, but it's reportedly going on all across the country. Authorities say that real estate agents have sold homes for stamps, and dentists have taken the coupons for bridge work and extractions. A plane has been sold in Texas for the stamps as have cars in Norfolk, Virginia. Some families in Washington pay their rent with coupons, for example. Federal drug agents use food stamps to purchase $40,000 worth of heroin from dope dealers in Baltimore. One of the Baltimore agents believes that the illicit stamp trade may amount to billions of dollars a year. He tells the people he knows who print the stamps on offset presses. And a man in New York has been caught with $200,000 in coupons in his home. Here's how it works. The lady in Philadelphia normally sells herself for $50 in regular currency, but she will take $100 in stamps. Taking the coupons to one of the 2,300, 130,000 stores authorized to redeem them. There she will sell them, say, for $75, making a tidy $25 profit. And the store makes a similar profit when it turns the stamps into the government for their face value. It probably isn't really necessary to point out that taxpayers pay for all of this as usual. <laughs> Have you found any of them coming into the commodity market, Dan? <laughs> oh, I'm sure there's financing coming from all sources. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add to what you've been telling us, Dan? Well, just in conclusion, Rush, uh, I could rephrase Psalm chapter 20, verse 7, uh, to say that some trust in Reagan and Volcker, others in gold and silver, others in cruise missiles, but we will trust in the living God. Very, very good.
Dan, by the way, in one of the larger churches in the Chicago area, uh, regularly teaches a class in uh, biblical studies and uh, does a great deal of studying in that direction. He has a great deal of delight in doing that on the side. I think it is of interest that uh, at least we at Calcedon have contact with men in commodities and in market newsletters and the like increasingly have a theological concern. I think this is most interesting because economics is essentially a theological subject. It has to do with ethics and it has been separated from that for too long. And now in a time of crisis, there is an interest in this area. You mentioned R.E. McMaster. He has more than a little interest in this field. You want to comment on that? You're very familiar with his writings. Yes, I've been reading his uh, newsletter, The Reaper, for probably four or five years. I would say he's largely responsible for my, my education in this particular field, along with quite a bit of on-the-job training. That's uh, one of the interesting things to, uh, to put together with what you just said is that um, theology is a matter of the heart, and a person's wallet is probably closer to their heart than their head is. <laughs> and so when you start dealing with money and investments and these sorts of things, you're getting right down to the nitty-gritty. <laughs> Very well put. Very well put. Well, the Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And uh, there must be a lot of hearts close to the commodities base and the board of trade. Well, now to go on to a few other subjects. I cited the Daily News Digest, which, by the way, is... uh, published in Phoenix, Arizona, P.O. Box 39850, Phoenix 85069. And it is um, $97 a year, an outstanding source of news. The Daily News Digest, in speaking of Andropov, says this, and this is in the issue of December the 8th, 82. For 15 years, the newly selected Soviet chief, Yuri Andropov, presided over the files collected by several hundred thousand skilled spies. He also knows all about the moral deviations of all the key people in the West and could undoubtedly ruin thousands of them within a week. They know it, too. You should not be surprised that so many Western commentators have treated Mr. Andropov with very great caution. For 15 years, his men were building up their files with tape recordings and photographs. He could, of course, have ruined half the Politburo. No wonder he received a unanimous vote. No one dared vote against him because the Politburo members have lived very 
sordid private lives. Well, that's a very telling point, and I think it's indicative of something that in the past few weeks since Andropov became head of the Soviet regime, wherever I go, there are very favorable articles about Andropov. And you would think that he was the soul of sweet reasonableness. All this goes on at the same time that we have more and more news coming out that the evidence is mounting against Andropov as the man who is responsible for planning and engineering the plot against the Pope. So here we have the worst hit man in the world, and we are told that uh, we need to deal very uh, carefully with him uh, because we mustn't offend a man who represents the voice of sweet reason finally come to power. So, when anybody tells you that uh, Andropov is a superior man and a man of reason, a man of capitalistic sympathies and uh, really an undercover Western uh, liberal, you had better wonder what that man was doing in the dark when he thought no one could see him. That is, no one except the KGB. Well, there are a few other items in the uh, Daily News Digest I want to touch on. Uh, before going on to something else, the Daily News Digest deals with the KGB's infiltration in Japan and speaks of the fact that during the 1970 10 of the Socialist Party leaders in Japan were under Soviet influence, that a great many of the journalists in Japan were similarly under KGB influence. This kind of control has prevailed all over the world because there's been no area that the KGB has not been active in. So we need to recognize that the news-gathering sources of the world are everything that Dan Harris said they are and are worse because the KGB has had its hand in all of them and has tried to get as much power over these people as possible. Well, now to another subject. One of the interesting people in the history of the American West was Josiah Gregg. Josiah Gregg wrote about the West and had a very real vision of its potential and its future. He was a native of Tennessee and he wrote in 1844, Commerce of the Prairies a classic account of the um, Santa Fe Trail. And one of the things that uh, made him notable was that he saw 
and set forth very clearly the vision of the West as so many in his day shared it. According to him, freedom was the goal of both the nation and the citizens, and the imperative appeal of the far West was the promise of greater freedom. As a result, those who went westward were dreaming of freedom above all else. Horgan, who has written a book on Josiah Gregg, Paul Horgan, Josiah Gregg and His Vision of the Early West, a book first published in 1941 and uh, most recently reprinted in 1979 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in New York. Horgan says this, Far West was a very faith. Steamboats and even children, according to the custom, were named for it. Promises were redeemed by it, a man to himself, a debtor to his neighbor, a lover to his bride. It had the grand commonness of all hope. This did not mean that the West did not represent problems, the wilderness earth and the Indians. But, Horgan says, ready and willing to find themselves good lives out of the land. The settlers moved out, ready to bundle into stockades, because their hope drove them west, kept them there, made them work against all odds, establish there the freedom. Now, he quotes uh, Greg this way. Speaking of the Western man and the Western trader. In the first place, the wild, unsettled, and independent life of the prairie trader makes perfect freedom from nearly every kind of social dependence and absolute necessity of his being. He is in daily, nay, hourly exposure of his life and property, and in the habit of relying upon his own arm and his own gun for both protection and support. Is he wrong? No court or jury is called to adjudicate upon his disputes or his abuses, save his own conscience. And no powers are invoked to redress them, save those with which the God of nature has endowed him. He knows no government, no laws, save those of his own creation and adoption. He lives in no society which he must look up to or propitiate. The exchange of this untrammeled condition, this sovereign independence, for life in civilization, where both his physical and moral freedom are invaded at every turn, is certainly likely to commend itself to but few. Not even to all those who have been educated to find their enjoyment in the arts and elegancies peculiar to civilized society. And so, he says, this was the thing that drove men westward, this vision of freedom. I submit that that vision is still operative in this country, although it has been very much tarnished. We have seen the gimme society, but I believe there is residual in the American character, that same dream of freedom. 
and I believe it will reassert itself in the years ahead. We're seeing that in the church and state battle. The kind of uh, law that prevailed is at times interesting. Greg cites this. There was a technique of bankrupt payment of debt which was regarded as perfectly legal by both debtor and creditor, and it had a savage morality. The debtor, unable to pay his debt in money, was privileged to grant a stripe for a dollar to his creditor. He tied him to a tree and lashed him once for every dollar that was uncollectible. It was a public ordeal, a public feast, a strictly regarded form of settlement, which bought a license for hurt and yielded the obscure enjoyment attendant upon the spectacle of pain and sanctioned by numbers of men present, all guilty as witnesses. This, a hundred years ago, during what might be called America's Middle Ages, a period of great preparation for greater discovery. Well, a little more about early America. There's a delightful book, Diary of My Travels in America. This goes back about 50 years, almost, before Josiah Gregg. The man who wrote the diary, and this is just a part of a much larger diary, most of which has been lost was Louis-Philippe, Prince of France, and later King of France. Louis-Philippe, in 1796, fleeing from the French Revolution, came to America, and with his two younger brothers and his manservant, traveled throughout the America of the day, the United States of the day, met with Mount Washington, smoked a peace pipe with Cherokee Indians, and more. And the sad fact is that in the process, Louis-Philippe learned a great deal about freedom and came to prize what the United States represented. He was a great admirer of this country. He genuinely tried, 50 years later, when he was king of France, a much older man, to apply these ideas, but they were still very much alien to French culture. And so, after a time, he was overthrown. He saw the operation according to the editor, Henry Steele Tomager, of that instinct of voluntarism, which was to strike de Tocqueville as perhaps the most important of democratic qualities. The readiness of men and women to band together to do whatever needed to be done. The few out paths to build stockades, to set up churches and schools, to govern themselves with or without outside authority. In other words, what he saw was self-government, and he found it most impressive. 
Louis Philippe met with many of the great men of the day as well as many very ordinary people who shared to a degree the romantic view of Indians which prevailed in his day, and yet he also was able to write very realistically of them. He was very much distressed by slavery, but uh, all the same uh, was appreciative of the good he saw everywhere, including in the South. He also had an eye for the absurdities and the rather primitive kind of accommodations he sometimes had in frontier areas. He regularly wrote with surprise of the fact that some of the wayside inns were surprisingly good and the food excellent. But some of the inns in faraway places were very, very bad. And he said when he was in one area... (laughs) And he had just seen a number of wild turkeys and a good deal of game. This was early in his travels. The food in the ends is nothing much. Generally, it amounts to no more than fried fatback and cornbread. Eggs have disappeared and the potatoes are finished. In the better places, they make us little wheat cakes that are rather good. There is coffee everywhere but bad, very weak. The sugar is always black muscovado, or unrefined maple sugar, which I like better. We had tea only once, and it was good, but it is not to be found. Nowhere in the inns are there chamber pots. We asked for one at Mr. J. Campbell's, and were told that there were broken panes in the windows that we could use. The reply was perfect for a game of cross-questions and crooked answers. There were, indeed, many broken panes, and it is a rare thing here to sleep in a hermetically sealed room. The other day, being in a loft, we were looking for the window or opening that should do service for a chamber pot. We found it ten feet up, and so we insisted on some sort of receptacle. They brought us a kitchen kettle. Most of the houses consisted one large room on the ground floor with two facing doors left open all day to cool it and air it, and an attic or loft where travelers sleep in pairs. Now, an interesting fact, even in those days, the common subject of American conversation was taxes. And uh, since Louis Philippe writes at one point, he says, Our host was a Pennsylvania German named Rocker, and his wife was an intolerable chatterbox. The bad weather collected a fairly large number of travelers in the vicinity, and we were exceedingly uncomfortable. Shortly, a conversation rose about the company, among the company about the distress of the Western folk and everybody railed to his heart's content. They claim to be overwhelmed by taxes, although there may be no civilized people who pay anywhere near as little. 
they pronounce it useless even to pay for the support of the local government of Kentucky. Everywhere they complain with the same angry acerbity of government by rich eastern businessmen. Everywhere they parrot paltry Jacobin commonplaces that the poor work hard and the rich get richer, and that the rich are not happy merely selling land at exorbitant prices, but find various ways to exhort what little money the settlers make, etc., etc. <laughs> Life hasn't changed much since 1797. Well, Prince Louis Philippe was a very astute observer, and he died in 1850, about 53 years after his American journey, at the age of 76. He had been monarch until 1848, when the revolution deposed him. He never forgot his American journey. He always longed for the same kind of constitutional freedom in France that the United States had. He held to being a citizen king, was at first popular as the bourgeois king, simple and dramatic, with the Palace Royale open to casual visitors and ordinary citizens. But because he was a Bourbon and a king, he was never entirely accepted. When conflict arose, he became less the citizen and more the king, perhaps a little too late, because France was not ready for freedom. Not too long after, it destroyed its own freedom that it had supposedly been so eager to have by making Napoleon III emperor. Well, Louis-Philippe, King of France, from 1830 to 1848, was an admirer of this country and its freedom. I wish more Americans today had the same respect for our freedom before we lose it entirely to the IRS, to the federal government, and to our own appetite for more and more handouts. Recently, the December the 27th, 1982 issue of Newsweek had a cover story, The Bible in America, a one book unites us, divides us, and still defines us. In part, it's a good article in that it calls attention to some aspects of our country which are being all too often neglected today, namely that this country is still, to a great extent, determined and its character set by the Puritan faith and by biblical categories. Now, the thing that is good is that he says that the Bible, far more than the Constitution, 
is the determining document in the United States. However, the article is one continuous attack on the idea that America is some way uh, a chosen land and a ch we a chosen people. The article begins by quoting John Winthrop, 1630, The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and command a blessing upon us in all our ways. And then from Ronald Reagan, November 25, 1982, I have always believed that this anointed land was set apart in an uncommon way, that a divine plan placed this great continent here between the oceans to be found by people from every corner of the earth who had a special love of faith and freedom. Now, this is called a piece of arrogance, in effect that this type of thinking ostensibly is unique to the United States and therefore constitutes a piece of presumption in that we ostensibly believe that America was in the Bible and that America therefore has a place in the divine plan. The truth is that what the Puritan thinkers and those who followed them who spoke about the place of America in God's plan we're talking about was, first of all, predestination. In terms of predestination, there is nothing that is not in God's plan. And wherever you are, in whatever country, you have to say, God created me and God created this particular portion of the earth for a particular purpose so that we, like everything else, have a place in the divine plan. Now, my duty is to find out what our place is and to fulfill that calling. Then, second, there is the concept of the chosen people. Well, who are the chosen people? Are they, of necessity, one people and one alone? The Bible is very clear on that. The Old Testament, the Hebrew prophets warned the nation, saying that God chose you because of his grace, that he can call the Ethiopians out and make them his chosen people tomorrow. In other words, God's chosen people are those who manifest his righteousness, his justice, in other words, in their everyday lives. Believe in him, obey him, and walk in terms of his word. This is why the Christians very early saw themselves as the new Israel of God, the new chosen people. This is why one group after another throughout the centuries have held, we are God's chosen people. This is why this same faith marked the people who came to this country. It is clearly a biblical belief to believe that you and I are chosen by God when we are redeemed by him. We are his chosen people. By the election of grace, we are made his. 
We can be as families, a chosen family, when we are the Lord's. What's wrong with saying that we as a nation can be a chosen nation? This is an entirely legitimate and a biblical belief. If a nation serves the Lord, if the nation becomes the vehicle of God's power, God's law, God's grace, then that nation is chosen. And what the Puritans and others in the early days of America held was that the United States should make itself into God's new Zion. Now, that is basic to the American char character, a belief that this nation has a duty to serve God, and if it serves God faithfully, it can say then, we are God's chosen people. He has used us to do certain things in the world. This is entirely legitimate. There is nothing contrary to Scripture in this. There is everything in Scripture to favor this. As a result, this sustained assault on the concept of election with regard to individuals and a nation or nations manifests an anti-biblical, an anti-covenantal characteristic that marks modern man. Tomorrow, Uganda can be a chosen people. Tomorrow, the United States can again be a chosen people, as I believe it once was. We should strive for this rather than regarding it as something wrong, something inappropriate. Thus, while the article has a great many good things in it, its basic hostility to the concept of election or predestination marks it as radically humanistic. I'd like to go now to something related to this. I mentioned Uganda, and I'd like to turn now to the words of a man from Uganda, Kefa Sapangi. This is from today's mission, the World Christian Magazine, November-December issue, 1982. Kefa Sapangi was one of the leaders of Uganda who went back into the country to attempt to rebuild it after Idi Amin. And this is what he says concerning Idi Amin. He destroyed a nation, and he did it in many ways. First, he killed off the middle class. He did this by inviting people to register for high-level jobs, listing their qualifications and whereabouts while doing so. He then systematically murdered them by a brutal means, driving over them repeatedly with cars, slicing them to pieces while still alive and feeding them to the crocodiles in the Nile River. Anyone with an education was considered competition. Consequently, all the industries were ruined because their managers were replaced by people with no technical know-how. Our machines, copper mines, sugar factories, cement factories, water systems, everything were destroyed. Amin also destroyed the family. 
Imagine kids having to watch as parents are brutally dismembered, their eyes poked out with knives, and then their heads cut off. No one would claim these orphans because they were scared of receiving the same treatment. Traditionally, Uganda has no orphans. We had extended families where my father's brother was also my father. The sister of my mother was also my mother. But today you can find children called abandoned. Never before have we had this condition. You can find dead children on the sidewalk and no one will claim them. You won't believe it, but where the garbage pile rises next to the marketplace in the capital city, Kampala, you will find the bodies of abandoned children who tried to steal some small piece of vegetable to remain alive. For that, they were brutally beaten to death. This is going on today. Uganda has completely degenerated morally. There are 20,000 kids living in that marketplace, all starving, underclothed, dirty, hardened by the murders of their parents, severely emotionally damaged, unloved by anyone. What are Christians doing about it and the widows? Today we have widows with five kids prostituting their bodies in order to provide for their families. Wells are contaminated from murdered people. Latrines and sewer systems are overflowing and spreading disease. Soldier abuse has also contributed to single girls starting prostitution. Once pregnant, they will use a stick or whatever they can to try to abort the child. A ten-year-old abandoned girl will be abused in the gutter several times every night of the week. It's as though a whole segment of society has been created as a result of Amin's rule. What can be done? Well, of course, ultimately it has to be the reconciling love of Jesus. A whole society has to be rebuilt, and that can only happen by his power. People are angry. They want revenge. They want to lash back at anything because their hearts have been torn apart by indescribable pain. We are making homes for the unwanted and unloved. We are taking those children from the marketplace, scrubbing them, putting clean clothes on them, feeding them, and wrapping our arms around them. Some of those 12-year-olds haven't bathed for years. And then we tell them about Christ and his love for them. We have started the sewing industry for the prostitute mothers. Because of the lack of electricity, we use manual sewing machines. If they make money this way, they will be able to start, stop prostitution. What about the men? Many could have jobs by carting goods or shining shoes, but it's extremely difficult to buy wheels for wheelbarrows or to import shoe polish. It's too costly. We have begun a sort of co-op to supply these materials. This alone will create hundreds, maybe thousands of jobs. Also, we are trying to break the cycle of poverty in the slums by taking one child from each of the slum families and teaching him or her a good trade. Hopefully, this will become a means of financial support and also an example to their peers of something to strive for. These kids also will eventually head up the now devastated industries of our country. What can we do? 
first of all, risk and get dirty. No fancy theories or safe trips. Christians must realize that it cost Christ his life to reach us. We need Christians to come and give us back our moral Bible, to rebuild our economy, to encourage us. We need help. Some people say Westerners aren't wanted. Read your Bibles. God commands us to go. He doesn't say to ask other people's permission. It's common sense that we need food, clothing, money, shelter, clean water, and moral strength. It's clear that some also lack spiritual relationship with Christ. This enough should be the call. Uh, Kefa Sampangi has a Ph.D. in art history. He was a professor in Uganda when Amin began his reign. He started the church which had to go underground, and the church today has 14,000 members. Uh, Sempangi was on Idi Amin's hit list, but by God's grace, he escaped arrest and death. Today, he heads up an organization called Africa Foundation to work primarily among the orphans and the single mothers. This is the kind of thing that constitutes Christian Reconstruction. This is the kind of thing that in God's time will make Uganda a chosen nation. We need to have a like dedication, and there are men in this country, in an increasing number, who are manifesting the same kind of faith. A little in the way of statistics on Uganda. Out of a population of 12.5 million, half a million were murdered, 300,000 widowed, and 800,000 orphaned. Well, that tells us something about one aspect of the ministry that is underway all over the world today. There's a great deal more that I could go in today, uh, but time is running out. I want to go into some other subjects dealing with Chalcedon's work, the church and state struggles in this uh, country, and much more at a later date. For the present, it's been good to be with you again, and it's been a delight to have Dan Harris with us. Do you have anything more to add to what you said earlier, Dan? Uh, no, thank you very much, Bill. It's been a pleasure to be here with you, Rush. And it's a pleasure to have you, Dan. I, uh, well, I'm going to take a minute or two on a lighter vein to give you something that, uh, I found, uh, more than a little, uh, delightful. This is a story told by, uh, Alvin W. Barclay, who was vice president under Harry Truman during his childhood days in Graves County. He said, in those days, a man could hardly aspire to public office unless he was a disabled Civil War veteran. 
One day in a brush arbor at Wingo, four candidates were making their appeal to the voters. The first candidate had crutches and an empty trouser leg pinned ostentatiously to his rotunda. I heard the call of duty, he said, and I fit in uh, enduring the war. I lost my leg at Shiloh, and I therefore appeal for your suffrage. The second candidate told how he had lost his arm at the Battle of Cynthiana. The third pointed proudly to the patch over the eye he lost in Vicksburg. Now the fourth candidate hobbled forth. I never fit in the war, he said, and I never got wounded. But, my fellow citizens, if physical disability is a qualification for office, I can tell you this. I am the doggonest, most ruptured son of a gun you ever saw. <laughs> he was probably better qualified for office than some we have in Washington today <laughs> and in the state houses. Well, on that note, I'll say goodbye and I'll be with you again in two weeks.